We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 32. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went on up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thousands of people in Nui and Lake Mac willingly choose to follow Jesus. Are they deluded or just brainwashed or do they just need some crutch to lean on to get them through life? Or is there more evidence for Christianity than we often think there is? Maybe it's time to reconsider Christianity. Well, when I was in primary school, I entered into a Fatty Vorton lookalike competition. Now, for those of you who don't know who Fatty Vorton is, Fatty Vorton used to be a rugby league player and he went on to host the NRL footy show for um, a bunch of years, which used to be on a Thursday night. And he's still a commentator for uh, Channel 9 with the rugby league. But I entered into this competition uh, and the prize for going into the competition was to be able to make it onto the show and potentially star in some of the kind of anti-ads that they used to do on the footy show. But anyway, it came back, the result, and I had come become runner-up and I got a signature with Fatty Vorton. So that was primary school. But when I got to high school and I told a few of my mates that this has happened, I was a runner-up in the Fatty Vorton look like competition. In year seven, the news got out across the whole high school that I was Fatty Vorton's lookalike. And so I started getting the nickname Little Fatty. And particularly with uh, these group of year 12 students, every time I'd walk past them, they'd yell out, hey, Little Fatty. And then I'd go and I'd often tell them a joke. They'd laugh, we'd have fun. 
And it got to the point that this, um, the, the, the kind of legend of Little Fatty in this school just kind of get, got more and more embellished and the stories that got told to the point that my mates used to get asked in year seven, oh, you're, are you friends with Little Fatty? Oh, that's so cool. Uh, soon the stories were that I had won the lookalike competition back in the day, that I was a regular on the footy show. Uh, s- rumors started circulating that I was Fatty Vorton's son himself. And so the man, the myth, the legend of Little Fatty, it just got embellished, it got to legend status, and it just really got out of hand. That's what most people think has happened to Jesus in history. Sure, he was probably a real historical figure. Sure, he was probably even a really good moral teacher, but it's just been embellished a bit from there. It's just kind of reached into legend status. Things have gotten out of hand. I mean, the walking on water or the forgiving of sins or the calming of storms or the healing of the sick, the rising from the dead. Jesus, the man, it's the myth, it's the legend. But who is Jesus and what impact has he had on this world? For the next uh, six weeks as we lead into Easter, we're going to be doing this series called Reconsidering Christianity. Normally, we would like to work our ways through books of the Bible, but we're going to spend six weeks just really digging in to some of the evidence for Christianity. And the marker of a really good worldview or a true worldview is first of all that it is existentially relevant. It's experientially satisfying. Secondly, that it's intellectually coherent and it's true. But thirdly, it's ultimately spiritually revealing of the world we live in. It's spiritually revealing of ourselves and God. And so as we go through this series... I hope those three things will be evident to you about Christianity, that it is existentially relevant and satisfying, that it is actually true, and that ultimately it reveals who God is, who we are, uh, and the eternal nature of our world. But in this talk, we're going to think particularly about who Jesus is or who Jesus was and what impact he has had on the world. We're going to first look at how the, how he's had such an impact on the world and then think about why he's had such an impact on the world. So for better or worse, our world, it is always shaped by those who came before us. Who we are, how we see the world, it's influenced by different historical figures. Who do you think has had the greatest impact in this world? Maybe you say it was Gandhi or Buddha or the prophet Muhammad, Julius Caesar or Hitler in a negative way or Aristotle or Pythagoras with the hypotenuse, don't you love that in mass? Or Alexander the Great or Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci. These people have all shaped the world for better or worse. And it's interesting, every list I googled for the most influential people in history of the world had Jesus in their top three. Some of them didn't argue for him as number one. Sometimes he was beaten by Isaac Newton or Plato or Einstein, but more often than not, an argument was actually put forward that Jesus has been the most influential person in our history. In fact, Time magazine ranks Jesus as number one. Listen to what the atheist author H.G. Wells says of Jesus and his impact on history. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. 
But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. So Jesus has had an impact on history, but what kind of impact has it been? How has Jesus shaped the course of history? Well, first of all, it's just had this magnitude of spreading Christianity. In the year 33 AD, hundreds of people in Israel witnessed the death of resurrect and resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And the news about Jesus from that moment spread rapidly. And you can actually read about it in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. You see this spread of Christianity that spreads to Rome within 30 years as thousands and thousands and thousands of people begin to believe in such short a time. And then around this time, the Roman Empire as a whole in the first century was experiencing this unprecedented time of peace which historians refer to in Latin as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And this amazing time of peace and security coupled with this amazing infrastructure that the Romans had meant that by the end of the first century, from Rome, which was the center of the Roman Empire, Christianity had become so strongly established across three continents by the end of the first century, the Middle East or Asia and then Europe and Northern Africa. By the start of the third century, historians estimate that 10% of the entire world were Christians, or at least claimed to be Christians. Maybe about 50% of the Roman Empire identified as Christians, to the point that the Emperor Constantine controversially declared Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire, which was a massive change in the Roman Empire. And of course, then as the centuries have gone on, Christianity had this magnitude of spread throughout the West. But now in our current time, it's actually experiencing this huge growth across Africa, Asia, and South Africa. So as you, as you analyze the spread of religions across the world, what we're seeing in our current moment, although it may be different in Australia, but what we're seeing in the world is that atheism is actually on the decline and Christianity is continuing to grow. So even to this day, there's the spread of Christianity. But more than that, the actual impact that Christianity has, it's had a cultural impact on the behavior of people and the views that we hold and the beliefs that we share. And so what we're gonna do, we're just gonna pick three ways that Christianity has had a remarkable impact we're going to think about what the culture was before Christianity, the Roman and Greek culture, particularly around the area for which Christianity came in, then the impact Christianity had on shaping culture and how we still feel the impacts of that of Christianity and Jesus today, although we've moved on in many respects in our culture. The first one I want to talk about is the physical creation. So in Greek and Roman culture, the body... The physical body and the material world was seen as less important. So our physical bodies were subordinate or lesser to our minds and spiritual selves. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, Christianity comes onto the scene and says, no, the body and material world are good. They're to be enjoyed with thanksgiving 
because they've been created by a good God, our good creator, the physical and spiritual, they're both good. So enjoy things of this creation. In fact, improve things of this creation. It's out of this philosophy that um, modern science, through many Christian believers, modern science kind of took off um, after the Middle Ages. And it's why we still believe in things like healthcare and scientific discovery. It's why we've had engineers and the study of materials and we've seen technology development and all those kind of things because Christianity affirmed the goodness of this creation. But then over time in the West, what started to gain significant momentum was then that the natural physical world is all there is. There was a removal of the spiritual in a sense. So everything only has a physical cause. Even love is just some brain chemistry going on in our heads designed to make us mate with one another. And so you see the rise of materialistic thinking or atheistic thinking, taking God out of the equation, there's only a physical world. And so the only hope for the world then is we've got to pour all of our pursuits into things like psychology and sociology and technology to try and cure hunger and aging and all those kind of things. And I reckon in the last few decades, we've started to lose some of that optimism. We've started to see a shift away from the physical being only and maybe a bit more of a return to spiritual. So that's the first thing, the monumental impact Christianity has had on how we view physical creation and how it actually amplified things like science um, and the goodness of this world to be enjoyed though with a loving creator. The second thing is the very nature of how people viewed history. So in a Greek or Roman culture, people viewed history as cyclical. So it just kind of went in circles. There's no direction. There was, you're a bit fatalistic. Just what happens is just going to happen. And it's a somewhat depressing kind of view of history. It's just going to go around in circles. But then Christianity, Jesus comes into the world and says, no, that's not how history works. The world is actually progressing towards the goal of eternal life. I have come, Jesus says, so that people may have eternity. And so the view that history is progressive comes from Jesus, who teaches us that history is under the control of a personal and powerful God and is moving towards this awesome climax. And then our culture has felt the effects of that. So we do still view history as progressive, but what we've done now is detached God from that view of history. And so we have this well, like, um, chronological snobbery in that sense. So whatever behind us now, it's out of date. People back then, they were idiots, they were dumb. Always in history, new and progression is always going to be better because we're moving towards a climax that we are making for ourselves. Because without God, we have to make our own history. We have to ensure we're on the right side of history. So that's how Christianity changed from this cyclical view of history to a more progressive view of history that we still see today, although we've detached God out of it. The third one and the final one we'll talk about in the way that Jesus has had such an impact on our culture is the place of the individual and the community in regards to morality and ethics and freedoms and rights. The place of the individual and the community in regards to morality and ethics. In Greek or Roman culture, 
The individual was always less important than the community as a whole. In fact, when it came to morality and human choices, human choices didn't really matter because of that fated or that fatalistic view. And they, we belong to an impersonal universe and so it didn't matter what choices we made. In fact, in that culture, human lives were not seen as that precious. And there was significant inequality in how you viewed different humans. So if you're a slave, you were lesser. If you're a woman, you were lesser. If you had a baby born with a disability, it didn't deserve to live because it was seen as lesser. Jesus comes into the scene. No, all humans are important. All humans have dignity and deserve help because we've all been created in the image of God. See, a reason Jesus came into this world was to bring equality and unity to humanity in him. Jesus made all human lives count. And so in that sense, he did uphold the importance of the individual. But at the same time, it was still upholding the importance of individuals living in community, particularly in relationship with God. And so in Christianity, our individual human choices of morality, they matter. We are responsible for our actions because we don't exist in an impersonal order, unlike the Romans and Greeks thought. We've been created by a personal God as responsible moral agents created in his image and he cares how we live. In fact, in response to the way that God has loved us, the great ethic and good for us as Christians is to love God with everything we have and is the reason that we're to love other humans, to love other people, to love our neighbours as ourselves. This is one of the things that actually made Christians stand out in those early centuries and actually aided the rapid spread of Christianity across the globe. The Roman emperor Julian in the, the fourth century speaking unfavorably as, of Christians is disgraced that Christians would show him up in living like this. So he says it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever had to beg and the impious Galileans, he's talking about Christians there, support not only their own poor, but they're supporting ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And so it's from the foundation of Jesus and the foundation of Christianity that the, the, we see the rise of caring for the vulnerable, the weak, the poor. We see the rise of the equality of women. We see the unity across all races in the globe. And we see the fighting of Christians to abolish slavery as a great evil in our culture. Christianity is the foundation for all of those ideals. Now, our culture has taken those ideals and we've shifted it away from God again. So now my individual human rights are more important than the whole. We've become more and more individualistic, selfish, if you will. There is a commitment, sure, to social justice, and we like the idea of loving our neighbour, but we don't necessarily do so in line with God's norms anymore. No, we get to determine as individuals what's right and wrong. We decide what the norms are. We determine right and wrong for ourselves. So we say things like, you do you, 
well, that's what you believe is right. This is what I believe is right. I've got to, we, we uphold that individualistic nature by saying you've got to love yourself first before you can truly love others. And because everyone's deciding right and wrong for ourselves, we can't decide on what is right and wrong. We can't agree on what's harmful or not. And often in that individualistic culture, when we do good to others, when we seek to help others, the biggest reason is because it's me being true to myself. Because by that act of good, it's fulfilling me and making me happy. See, we live in a culture now, as we think about the big picture of these three things, we live in a culture that upholds these values and ideals which have been deeply impacted by Jesus. He really did change the course of our history. And we still try and uphold many of the values that come out of Christianity, that have come out of Jesus. But in many ways, we've also completely intensified them or overcorrected them away from God. And so now in our current culture, by removing Jesus, by removing Christianity from the reasons we seek to live out some of these values, we've tricked ourselves into believing that the ideals we have in our culture, they're just self-evident truths. Any random person could see that this is what you do. We no longer have any foundation to place our ideals on. But listen to what the non-Christian historian Tom Holland says in his book, Dominion, about that. He says, the idea is that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not a remotely self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Jesus has shaped cultures. Jesus is still shaping cultures and countries and presidents and kings, queens and emperors. Some of his words and teachings have been the basis for our law and whole judicial systems. He's inspired schools and orphanages and hospitals and universities and civil rights movements and charities worldwide for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has been the most influential person in our history over the last 2,000 years. But why? What is it about Jesus? What is it about what he taught and what he did that is still having such a huge impact on our world? Well, let's dig into the passage that was read for us before in Luke 5. And let's think about who Jesus is and the claims that he's making here. In Luke 5, it says, One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, you see there from the moment that, yes, Jesus, he was a good teacher. He is a good teacher. People flocked to come and listen to his teaching. But he's so much more than that. Look what Luke goes on to tell us. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. um, Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. 
When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So you've got this paralyzed man, this crowd kind of all around the house as Jesus is doing this teaching. And this just this desperation for this paralyzed man and his mates to try and get their friend, their paralyzed, this paralyzed man healed. And they're so desperate that what they do, they're not going to make their way through the crowd. They probably walked up the stairs and onto the kind of roofs, that flat roofs at the top, and they dug their way through the roof so that then they lower this paralyzed man right in front of Jesus. And we're supposed to get a picture here of the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of suffering. And we're going to think more about how Christianity in future weeks actually tells us about why the world is the way this is. But there's desperation for this man to be healed. You, and so when they, his mates, they bring someone suffering for decades to the foot of Jesus. What does Jesus do next? What do you expect Jesus to do next? Well, look what he says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't heal him. This is shocking, right? He forgives his sins. See, Jesus isn't just dealing with this man's felt needs. He's dealing with his greatest needs. So think about it for a moment. To forgive someone, you have to be the injured party. You have to be the one who an offence has been made against you. That's what sin is. It's relational harm or hurt to another. But the claim that Jesus is making here is that it's this paralyzed man in some way has ultimately harmed him. Jesus is making the claim that he himself is God. That is how he can forgive this man's sin, that this man has been in rebellion against God. Not, and that's not necessarily why he's suffering. But Jesus is making a significant claim here about who he is. In his famous book, um, The World's Religions, which is this textbook, and it's like the textbook on world religions and has been for many years, Huston Smith says, there are only two people in the history of the world that were so influential that people and stood, up, stood up and asked, not only who are you, but also what are you? Two people who've had such an influence and lives marked by such beauty that people not just ask, who are you, but also what are you? He says those two people, they're Buddha and Jesus. But only one of those people claimed to be God. Have a look at what Jesus says next. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy, who's speaking evil against God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, there's a significant difference between the two influential people of Buddha and Jesus. When people came to Buddha to worship him, he said, don't worship me. I'm not a God. Don't look to me. Look to my Dharma. Look to my teaching. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't deny the claim of the Pharisees. In fact, he goes on to affirm it. Jesus 
unequivocally accepted worship from people. He not only accepted worship for being a God, he said, I am the God. And so when people worship Jesus, he calmly took it. Later in Luke 7, there's a sinful woman who anoints him, pours perfume on him to worship him. And he gladly accepts it. And again in that story, he forgives her sins only as God could do. So Jesus, he's in fraternity with some of the most influential figures in the world, right? He's undoubtedly had a huge impact on this world. No rational person denies that. But there's also another group of people in the world, those who have claimed to be God. Now, there's loads of people, in fact, in that category as well, who've claimed to be gods. In fact, when I was um, thinking about it, there's a loony in Queensland right now claiming to be God, setting up a cult following him. But that's the thing, right? Other people who claimed divinity have always been unable to convince people except maybe, you know, the off-balanced or ragtag, disenfranchised small group of people that they are God. There've been dozens of them and they've only managed to convince a small bunch of people. On the other hand, you have a whole bunch of people who've had a huge influence and they often say, don't look to me, don't worship me, look to my teaching. That's what the humility, in a sense, is what made them great, except one guy who sits over both categories. One man who made incredible claims that he is the God, and millions believed him. See, Jesus not only claimed to be God, but he convinced the people closest to him, people who lived with him, that he was God. Keeping in mind that the last people on the face of the earth who would believe that a human could be God were the Jewish people. See, in Eastern religions, God is a life force often who moves through everything, moves through everyone. So it wouldn't be unusual in that kind of worldview for someone to claim to be God. And even in the Greek and Roman cultures, they had this understanding that there were lots of gods in Greek mythology roaming around who would often appear and disguise themselves as human beings as they came and had fun on the earth. But the Jews had a view of a God that was transcendent, that he was unmatched by anyone else. And this view was unmatched by any other cultural religion, that God was holy and separate. He wasn't just imminent and personal, but he was over creation. He was the creator who created the world. He was beginningless, eternal. And the Jews had been taught for thousands of years in the first two commandments to never, ever worship someone created, something created. They'd had that instilled in them. They didn't even use the name of God. It was too holy. The last people who would believe a man was God would be the first century Jews. These are the people that did life with him. They ate with him. They slept with Jesus. They worked with Jesus. And the disciples, they not only heard his claims, but they believed him. And then their lives were transformed and they would go on to die for Jesus. Eleven of the twelve apostles would be executed. If the most influential figure in the world has claimed to be God, if he made claims of such magnitude that he changed the course of history, There is no thoughtful person who can walk away from that. 
There's no thoughtful person who, who shouldn't reconsider if you're not already who Jesus is and the impact he's had. This is not a legend. See, can you see how you can't accept Jesus as just a good moral teacher? There's too much evidence to the contrary. And that's not what Jesus himself claimed. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be at the center of our history. He claimed to be at the center of our universe. He claimed to desire our worship of him. You can't just write him off as some good moral teacher. You can say he was a liar and an even bigger miracle occurred because he tricked millions of people and continues to trick them to this day. Or you could say he was a lunatic and still tricked people and a bigger miracle occurred. Or you could reconsider that this is true, that this is coherent and rational and it's existentially satisfying. But more than that, it's actually how we are saved by knowing the God of the universe. See, look at Jesus' teaching on how God him being God applies to us in verse 22. Jesus knew that they were thinking, how could God, how can he do this? Only God himself can forgive sins. Jesus knew, he's reading minds here, God can do that. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? What do you think is easier? In our culture, who cares um, who doesn't care about really forgiveness of sins. You know, we live in, if we live in an only material world where we all make up our own right and wrong anyway, in atheism, it doesn't really matter whether you do good or not. There's no good or bad or any meaning or purpose in life for that matter. Who cares about the forgiveness of sins? It's much harder to make someone paralyzed walk again in our culture. But if there is a God and sin is real, and we've turned our back on him, we've rebelled against him, which is easier? So think about forgiveness for a moment. Is forgiveness easy or hard? I think many of us can think about examples in our life where we've been deeply hurt and harmed by others and have found it really hard to forgive. Maybe some of you haven't forgiven. See, the greater the offence, the harder it is to forgive someone, isn't it? And I think this is one of the hardest things in being in pastoral ministry, is encouraging people to forgive when there's been great harm done against them. Jesus says, which is harder? For me to forgive sins and our constant rebellion against him, our ignorance of him, our disobedience of him, or to make this man walk. And he says, so you know I'm God, I'm going to do the hard thing. Whichever one you think is hard, I'm just going to do both. <laughs> but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home, praising God, worshipping Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, worshipping. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Friends, we've all sinned against God and are deserving of God's judgment. 
And to forgive someone is to say that no payment is necessary for that real wrong you've done. It's to absorb the cost of the harm on yourself. This is the profoundest of human problems that the Bible deals with. It's the profoundest need that we all have, which Jesus claimed to come and deal with. We all need forgiveness before God, our good creator. We've all ignored him and turned our backs and haven't given him thanks for all the good things that he's given us. Jesus entered into the course of our human history and the way he made forgiveness possible was by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. He bore the wrath of God's judgment that we deserved on that cross. And in return, he offers us forgiveness and eternal life in relationship with him. See, that picture of eternal life is a picture of what we actually see in the healing as well. Not only does God forgive the man's sins, but he heals him. He renews him physically, firstly, to show us that he is God, that he has the power to forgive sins. He can do the harder thing of forgiving sins, but it also points us forward to a new history, a new creation that when Jesus returns, he promises to fulfill, where there'll be a new history where sin and suffering and death will be no more and will be perfectly living in relationship with God for all eternity in his presence. Jesus is the God of the universe who entered into this world as both God and man to bring forgiveness, our deepest need, and to bring the new creation, a new history that will extend into eternity. He's changed the course of history dramatically. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Will you consider putting your faith in Jesus? Will you reconsider the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus over this series and come to trust him as the good God that he is who's come to give us forgiveness? Friends, when you do that, it's existentially satisfying. It experientially works. It's intellectually credible. It makes sense of the world and how it is. We're going to look at that. It gives you meaning and purpose. We're going to look at that in future talks. It's historically reliable. We're going to look at that next week. It's consistent. But most of all, it's spiritually salvific. It brings salvation. It deals with our greatest need. And friends, the way that you can reconsider it is through the Word of God. It's through the Bible. So can I encourage you throughout this series to pick up one of the Gospels, pick up Luke's Gospel and read it for yourself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, the creator of this world. And 2,000 years ago, through Jesus Christ, you stepped into our history. God became man. And you came to bring us our greatest need of forgiveness. You did that so that we could have eternal life for you and eternity with you. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've shown us this undeserved mercy, this grace, the way that you've loved us. And we pray that we continue to be a people who not only trust you, um, but continues to love you with everything we've got, to worship you, to bring you glory and to love our neighbours, to love others. We thank you that this is the foundation. This is the reason for why we seek to do good. And we pray for all of those who are reconsidering Jesus. 
that they may come to know you as their Lord and Saviour and put your trust in you, the God who's changed the course of history, the God who is bringing us a new history for all eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.